Have you ever lied to someone? You don't have to raise your hand, it's all right. You ever lied to someone? Have, have you ever had someone lie to you? An article this week on CNBC detailed that some studies have showed that the average person is lied to 10 to 200 times a day. Man, that's a lot of lies. So why so many lies? Well, it gave three reasons. One, to keep a conversation going. Two, to avoid conflict. Three, to establish a connection with someone. All reasons why there are so many lies. And really, we could boil all three of those right down to one sentence, right? We lie to get what we want. Now, what we want may not be bad or evil, but the very nature of a lie is it's designed to get us what we want. You may have heard the story about Christopher Columbus being stranded once in Jamaica. He was desperate for supplies, having a very hard time getting supplies. He had an almanac that was published by a German astronomer, and the almanac detailed that on the next day there was going to be a lunar eclipse. So the tribal chief that he had been dealing with, Columbus went to, and this is what he told the tribal chief. Unless you give me supplies, the moon shall lose its light tomorrow, and the God who protects me will punish you. Sure enough, the next day, the lunar eclipse happened, and Columbus got his supplies. Pretty nifty, huh? Well, as the story continues, in the early 1900s, an Englishman tried the exact same thing. He was talking to a chief in Sudan, and this is what he told the chief. If you do not follow my orders, vengeance will fall upon you and the moon will lose its light. This was the response of the chief. If you're referring to the lunar eclipse, that doesn't happen until the day after tomorrow. <laughs> Old chief must have got him an almanac too. Read up on what's going on. Now, there's nothing comforting or encouraging about hearing that we may be lied to 10 to 200 times a day. But that information takes on new meaning when it is applied to someone who is supposedly telling us about Jesus. Paul was writing a letter to his friend Titus. He was trying to help Titus and some folks around Titus, people just like me and you. He was trying to help them understand what it means to wear the gospel. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean to wear the gospel? Well, to wear the gospel is more than just physical clothes, right? What it means is that our, our church clothes and our work clothes and our school clothes, our weekend clothes, our vacation clothes, our ballpark clothes, our restaurant clothes, all of our clothes are actually the same. In other words, it means that our profession of faith in, in Jesus is not something that's just seen on Sunday morning and barely seen during the week in our activities and our attitudes and what we post on social media. This is especially true when it comes to leaders in the church. Whether it's an elder, a pastor, overseer, or a volunteer in vacation Bible school. The gospel is not supposed to be seen occasionally in the life of someone who claims to follow Jesus. The gospel should be seen pretty consistently. And when the gospel is seen, it's supposed to be the actual gospel that is seen. What does that mean? What is the actual 
gospel? Well, hopefully that's what we're going to find out this morning. Look with me at Titus 1, beginning with verse 10. Paul writes, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. In the early church, there were people who stirred up trouble. There were people who started gossip. There were people who badmouthed the pastor. There were people who were fighting and demanding more ministry activities for their families. There were people who criticized the font and the bulletin. Wow, man. Aren't you glad nothing like that happens in any churches anymore? It's really funny if you think about it. This is 30 years after Jesus was crucified and risen. And already that kind of stuff was going on in the church. So we don't glory in that and go, oh, well, good, I'm just as bad as the people way back then. No, actually what it does is it helps us to see something a little more important than that. And that's this, that the truth of the Bible is as important in this room right now, today, as it was when it was written. You see, the truth is, is that there have always been people connected to the local church that talk really nice about Jesus, but they actually are directing people away from the gospel, away from the truth about Jesus. The Bible often refers to folks like this as false teachers. But don't confuse this notion of false teachers with just folks who are pastors or Sunday school leaders. Anybody can have influence over any kind of group of people, large or small. Anyone can lead a group of people astray. It could be a Sunday school class. It could be a small group. It could be a committee. It could be a, a regular out-to-eat group. Or it could be a weekend hangout. Paul says there is influence everywhere. What are these folks like? Well, he gives us their resume. He says they're rebellious, meaning they push away from making the Bible the final authority of their lives. They like the Bible. They talk about the Bible. But when it comes to the final authority of life, the final authority of life that usually feeds their decisions is more something along the lines of of their personal preferences, what, what they want. Or maybe just what their parents or their grandparents taught them to do. Or maybe even sometimes the way things have always been done. Or the way things are now being done. None of those things are bad. They're just not the Bible. None of those things are evil. It's just not the truth of God's Word. My grandmother was one of the sweetest people I have ever known. She made the best fried chicken, the best rice. I mean, I know you say, how can you mess up rice? Trust me, you can mess up rice. My grandmother never messed up rice. It was incredible. And she made the best fat back. Oh, my goodness, the fat back was so good. Every time I went to her house, there was this little plate right on the corner, and she had already just made some fat back. And I appreciate Georgia still being concerned about my arteries as she was earlier this week. My grandmother was wonderful, but she was not the breath of God. My parents are the best. I don't know anyone in my life that's more faithful, more church-devoted, more hardworking, more loving towards their family. But my parents are not the breath of God. The Bible, though, is God-breathed. 
The Bible contains the very breath and words of God. So as a believer, I have no option but to joyfully make the Bible my final authority on what is real and what is right and how I make decisions. Paul says these false influencers, these false teachers, they refuse to put the authority of their life under the Bible. They were rebellious against God in that way. And what did that lead to? Well, Paul says it made them empty talkers and deceivers. They love talking about spiritual issues. They, they talk about all kinds of spiritual issues, but they would not talk about the one true gospel. In Paul's day, this means that they would talk about all kind of fables, all kind of legends, all kind of myths, all kind of wives' tales. Again, things connected to religion and spirituality, but not the gospel. And it wasn't that those things were all evil. It's just that they were empty. They did not direct people back to the hope and the peace and the salvation that can only be found in Jesus. If we were to think about this in modern terms, we might say that a person like this would put together some grand pilgrimage to the Holy Land just to go and, and be baptized in the Jordan River by an actual descendant of someone from Levi. But they would not volunteer for any of the mission projects in their own church. Maybe a person like this would mount a pretty fierce fight to make sure that in God we trust stays on our coins. But they would not share the gospel with their own children and their own grandchildren or disciple their own family. In other words, not bad stuff, good stuff, but ultimately stuff that could fall under the category of empty because it doesn't directly push people toward Jesus. It doesn't bring the gospel of Jesus Christ directly into conversation. Paul says this empty talk became so controlling that not only was it not the one true gospel that they were presenting, but they would begin to lie about the other uh, gospels they were sharing. It doesn't take long for deception to kick in when you're trying to get people on board with what you want. They were impressive, they were articulate, but their words were not leading people to a godly lifestyle. People were listening to what they were saying, but they weren't becoming more Christian. The, the functionality of their life did not look more like Jesus. But you know, we could flip that coin around in our culture too. We could say it this way, that there are people who have great moral lives. On the outside, they have a, a godly picture of what their conduct is like, but they can't articulate the gospel. You see, it's not an either or, it's a both and. We need to understand and speak and talk about the gospel, but we also need to live out the gospel. This past Wednesday night, some of you may have met Michael and Vivian who were here with us. In their business, Michael and Vivian meet people from all over the world. And they share with me that in particular when they meet African nationals who are also Christians, they're always amazed with how cross-centered they are. Meaning that the cross of Jesus Christ is, is not just a story. It is the driving force of their lives. The way they think, the way they talk, the way they make decisions is connected to the cross of Christ. They talk about the cross and they live out the cross. Because, see, the cross of Jesus is not empty talk. There's power. There's authority in the cross. 
Paul said there were some who were rebellious. They were empty talkers. They were deceivers. And then he says that there was one particular group that was great at doing those things. And he called them those of the circumcision. These would have been early Jewish Christians. And what they were saying was this, that you need to be circumcised in order for your salvation to be authentic. In other words, they were saying you need Jesus and something else. You need to, you need to add something to Jesus if your salvation is going to be real. In particular, they were adding in traditions of the church is what you also had to have plus Jesus. Now, sometimes I think when we hear the word traditions, we always think of something that's old, something that happened long ago. But, you know, if you've done the same thing more than once, it can be classified as a tradition. So some people might say this. Well, I think that you should wear a coat and tie on Sunday mornings to promote respect to the church and to the worship service. And some people would say, well, I think you should wear flip-flops on Sunday morning to promote respect to lost people who don't have church clothes and need to find Jesus. Well, those of the circumcision would say, hey, I think you need to be circumcised in order to promote the respect that salvation is supposed to have. Now, I'll be the first to say that changing shoes and changing clothes is a little different than circumcision. There's a little more involved with that, I'll give that. But Paul gives a principle about circumcision that I think applies to almost any issue in the life of the church. This is what he said to the Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. Paul says, look, this isn't about circumcision, and it's not about not being circumcised. It's not about being circumcised or not being circumcised. This isn't about obeying God's law or ignoring God's law because you can't bribe God. You can't obey the law enough to be right with God and you can't ignore the law and be right with God. Paul says this isn't about what you do or don't do for God. This is about what God has done for you. The gospel is about what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard this phrase? I saw it recently on a church sign, I think. Well, God has done his part, and now I have to do my part. That's not the gospel. That is empty talk. This is the gospel. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. Mission accomplished. There's nothing left to do. I have satisfied everything that has to be done. There is no prayer and no work and no sermon. There is no financial gift. There is nothing we can add to the work of the cross. It's complete. It's finished. It's done. Someone once put it this way. It'd be like somebody who had a rare baseball autographed by Babe Ruth. And one day they look at that baseball and and they see that the autograph is fading off a little bit. And so they take a pen and they decide they're going to trace back over so you can really see that autograph a little better. But what they did was just actually take all the value of the autograph away. 
Take all the value of that baseball away. See, a a false teacher, a, a false influencer, what they're doing is they're trying to add other stuff to Jesus, and what they do in doing that is convince people that Jesus is not valuable enough that you need something else. They, they take away, at least in the, in the minds of people, the value of the cross and the value of the gospel. And what does Paul say has to be done about folks like that? Verse 11, they must be silenced. <laughs> false teachers and false influencers, they, they have to be silenced. Now I'll admit that sometimes that is easier said than done, but it still has to be done. Well, How? Well, first, you have to actually know the gospel, okay? You, you can't just silence somebody because you don't like what they are saying. It has to be that this person is actually promoting that Jesus is not enough. That is the only way you can really step into a silencing situation. Sometimes pastors have to be removed from their positions. Sometimes Sunday school teachers have to be removed from their positions because they are speaking the opposite of the gospel and they refuse to stop. Sometimes it's just a rebuke to a pastor or an elder, an overseer, a a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, any kind of leader in the church that, hey, you're, you're off course there. You need to change. But how would you know if someone needs to be silenced? Well, Paul already told us, right? Are they rebelling against the authority of the Bible? Are they sinfully challenging the leadership of the church with things that have nothing to do with the gospel? Are they agenda-focused or are they gospel-focused? Is faith in Christ what they promote first and most or do they promote other things? Paul gives us exactly what we need to look for when it comes to silencing false leaders and false influencers. And why do they need to be silenced? Look at verse 11 again. Because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Whole families here could be a literal family or it could be a church family. In other words, it could be messing up things at my house with my wife and my kids or it could be messing up things in the church that I attend. Either way, the notion is still the same. The the influence is directly distracting people from Jesus. It is distracting people away from the gospel and towards some kind of agenda instead. And Paul says that when it happens, they're doing it for sordid gain. If you remember from last week, we talked about how sordid gain, first and most, means financial gain. It's, It's greed for money. But it expands a little bit. It could be greed for recognition. It could be greed for respect. It could be greed for applause. It could be greed for anything that you want more than Jesus being famous in your life, in your home, and in the church. Upsetting things doesn't mean that it's always a false teacher either. Paul says, man, things are getting upset. Just because someone has a TV ministry or because they pastor a megachurch doesn't make them a false teacher. Upsetting means that that there's something wrong with the gospel. Think of it this way. Imagine you have two parents who are outspoken atheists, and their teenage son comes to faith in Christ. That's going to upset things in the home a little bit. But hopefully the friction will be because of the gospel. It won't be because the son, all of a sudden, gets really rude and arrogant and rebellious and spends the whole day telling his parents they're going to hell but rather he takes his faith in Jesus Christ and and he uses it in a winsome way. 
in hopes that his folks might come to Jesus too. See, that's, that's a different upsetting. What Paul's talking about is when the gospel is being ignored. Paul's saying when there's conflict in marriage and there's conflict in the, between parents and children, when there's conflict in the local church, all because the gospel is being pushed to the side and a tradition or a fad or any other selfish agenda or empty talk is being put before Jesus, being put before the gospel. There was a lot of empty talk where Titus was. I mean, a lot. There was a lot of empty talk on the island of Crete because the island of Crete was full of liars. Look at verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. I want you to imagine that uh, the editor of, of a statewide newspaper were to write an article, and in the article he writes this sentence, The people of South Carolina are always liars. And they act like mean, nasty, wild dogs, and they live like fat, lazy pigs. That'd go over great, right? <laughs> well, that's exactly what this guy in Crete did. He was somebody who was born and raised there, and that's what he said about his own people. Paul says, look, you don't have to take my advice for this. Here's someone who was born and raised among you, and he says, you guys got a lot of stinkers out there. You know, I think sometimes if we were to make this practical, it's not just general for the island of Crete. Think of it this way. I know communities where there was someone who was born and raised in that community. Maybe they were a, a great student in high school or a great athlete in high school, and, and they're still in the community. They've spent their life there. They've started a very successful business, and everybody in town loves them because they were born and raised there, and after all, they've never killed anybody, so they must be pretty good. Paul's saying this. I don't care if he's Johnny All-Star. If he's putting something before Jesus Christ, shut him down. Take away his microphone. Take away his leadership. Take away his role. He cannot influence, no matter how great he is, if the influence he has is something other than the gospel. Some might say, well, Paul, Paul's being a bully, telling us we've got to walk around with muzzles and put them on Johnny All-Star. Paul's being kind of mean here, right? Look at verse 13. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Paul's not being a bully. Paul's being a protector. He's being an encourager. You see, when a, a false teacher, a false influencer is spreading lies, he's damaging families, he's damaging the church, but guess what? He's damaging himself. This is a huge bit of grace in the middle of this warning. Paul says, look, you need to deal with this severely and sharply because not only is it good for the glory of God, not only is it good for the church, not only is it good for marriages, not only is it good for families, not only is it good for the community, it is good for this agenda-driven liar. Paul says, it's just good. That's what the gospel does. The gospel's good for people. He says here that it will help them be sound in faith. What does it mean to be sound in faith? Well, he's going to define sound in faith by saying what it's not. Look at verse 14. 
not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Again, the whole idea here is this, Jesus and something else. It may be a myth, it may be a secret code, it may be one commandment. I know people who are one commandment people. They'll ignore nine of the ten, but man, they will make a big deal out of the one. And usually it is not love the Lord your God first and most. It's one of the other ones. Whatever it may be, it is distracting people from the gospel. It's saying this is more important than Jesus. That's not what it means to be sound in the faith. Sound in the faith means that when it comes to being right with God, there's one answer. There's only one answer. There's always one answer, and that answer is this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. There's not another answer. One commentator put it this way. When you come to Christ, you do not come to give, you come to receive. You do not come to try your best, you come to trust. You do not come just to be helped, but to be rescued. You do not come to be made better, although that does happen. You come to be made alive. Without Christ, we're dead in our sins. In Christ, we are alive. Alive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not Jesus and something, just Jesus. And nothing, just Jesus. Look what Paul says in verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. In other words, to those who are in Christ, everything's about Christ. See, when it comes to empty talk or or deceivers, they're not enticed, they're not distracted, because they know everything is about Jesus. They are focused on the gospel. But the defiled, the unbelieving, they're always having an and. They're always adding something else to it. Yes, you need Jesus. You need Jesus and you need to wear this. You need Jesus and you need to sing this. You need Jesus and you need to believe in this one church only. You need Jesus and you need to believe in this one pastor only. You need Jesus and you need to carry on this tradition. Or you need Jesus and you need to carry out and jump on the bandwagon of this fad. That's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is you need Jesus, period. The gospel is Jesus, period. The worst part about this and culture is here's what happens. When you begin to say, yeah, I got Jesus, but I need this too, and and I need this, and what happens is over time, your conscience, it gets burned. What's your conscience? Very simply put, your conscience is the ability to understand right from wrong. So see, what happens is when we buy into the and culture, when we begin to add things to the gospel and add things to Jesus, what we do is we begin to give ourselves permission to contradict Jesus, to work against Jesus. Why? Well, Paul said it. To the pure, everything is about Jesus. Everything is about knowing and loving and following Jesus. To the unpure, to the defiled, to the unbeliever, there's never anything that's pure. There's never enough. you got to have more of the and, or you need to have another and. And on and on this goes. Jesus is never enough to comfort us. He's never enough to encourage us. You always have to have something else. Listen, that is a miserable life, and it is the opposite of the gospel. This is what Jesus said. I came 
that they may have life and have it abundantly. The false teacher and the false influencer, what they do is this. They, they take that verse and they say, Jesus has come to give you life. And the way to have that abundant life is to sin, 999, you know, to this. You know. The way to have that abundant life is to, is to pray this or say this or do this or have this or, or just do what I tell you to do. That's not the gospel. That's actually distracting people from the gospel. Now, is that dangerous? It's very dangerous. Look what Paul says in verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That is a strong, sobering statement. Paul says they profess to know God, but they deny God with how they live. They profess to know the gospel, but they actually don't know the true gospel. I read a tremendous article this week by Brandon Clements on the true gospel. I want to share just a, a few portions of what I gleaned from him. And the first is what the word gospel means, the etymology, so to speak, that he pulled from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is what he says. If your nation was at war with another nation, regardless of the outcome, messengers would be sent back with the news. It was either bad news, run for your life. Certain death is coming with the other nation's army because our army is lying dead on the battlefield. They are coming to kill and pillage us. That was the news you would get. Or it was good news. Gospel, the battle has been won. The blood of our soldiers has purchased your freedom. You won't be killed. You are free. Relax and enjoy the victory that's been won for you. And then he writes this. Those villagers would sit there on pins and needles awaiting the fate of their very existence, holding their families tight. Man, can't you feel that? I, I can feel that. This is it. This is the moment. This is the future. This is our life. This is our soul. This is everything. That news defines everything. Have you heard the gospel yet? Have you heard the good news that sounds just like the messenger coming back from battle? Clements goes on to write, Hear it smack your ears with the relief of a lifetime. Gospel, gospel, good news. The blood of another has purchased your freedom. Breathe easy. Death is no longer your fate. Does your soul feel relief at the sound of Jesus' substitutionary life and death, his righteousness imputed to you? Does your heart have a heave with a, a phew? When you hear of the freedom from religious pressure and performance purchased for you by the blood of God's Son. And then he writes this. If not, we have a problem. A watered-down, confused, or misunderstood gospel. That's why Paul writes this. He did not want Titus to have a problem. He didn't want the, the church at Crete to have a problem. 
He didn't want me and you to have a problem. He wanted us to have hope. Not hope in the, the maybe predictions of an almanac, but hope in the sure, real book that contains the very breath of God. Not hope in a formula that was Jesus and something else, but hope in the one who said, it is finished, done. Paul's writing, because in our homes and in this church, and in the community. We need leaders. We need influencers that will say there is only one gospel, and this is it. Salvation and rescue is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other message. Let's pray.